0: hello and welcome to scream scene the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst my name's sarah and i'm ben thanks for listening to us today how are you doing ben pretty
1: good um i've been doing pretty good the last few days because it's it's been nice out because it's been sunny yeah it's it's sort of absurd the degree to which my mood is affected by how much sunlight there is in a day but it's been a nice sunny weekend and it's the long weekend and that's been great thank you unions
0: for the long weekend
1: yeah yeah absolutely um we're recording this the day before labor day yes so
0: my day has been pretty good. I went to the cat cafe with my mum. We can't have cats here, both because of Landlord and also because Ben is deathly allergic. Mm. I am also slightly allergic. So having visited cats today, uh, I'm a little sniffly. Uh, it is not COVID. It is cats. <laughs> <laughs> what are we watching today, Ben?
1: Today, Sarah, we are watching The Abominable Snowman from 1957, directed by Val Guest. And this is coming from Hammer Horror. That's correct. This is a Hammer film, and as you may be able to tell from the title, it's a Yeti movie.
0: Yeti? More like... Grady, Great-y?
1: Nope, that's nothing. No. That's nothing at all.
0: Well, listen, uh, that joke is about as good as all of the previous Yeti movies.
1: Yeah, we've had some...
0: Real stinkers.
1: Yeah, we, we've we sort of yet to see a Yeti movie <laughs> that we liked.
0: Yeah. I mean, okay, so like, there has been one that has done fairly well on the list, but...
1: Is that half human? Yeah. Where is that sitting?
0: Uh, okay, well, let me start from the
1: beginning. Okie dokie.
0: Um, because we do things in a chronological order, Ben. Right. So our first Yeti movie was The Snow Creature from 1954, directed by W. Lee Wilder. Uh, That's episode 173, and it's number 200 on the list of 201. Oh, (laughs) no. Yes. So, wasn't good, but it's the very first Yeti movie we have covered. Uh, The second and the highest ranked is Jujin Yuki Otoko, also known as Half Human, from 1955, directed by Ishiro Honda. If you want to hear more about that, that is episode 180, and it is ranked at 68.
1: That's quite a a leap.
0: Yes, definitely. Uh, And then, since then, we've had one other Yeti movie. In 1956, we had Man Beast, directed by Jerry Warren. That's episode 187, and it is ranked at number 150.
1: Yeah, that movie was very... Bad. It had some interesting ideas. But it was
0: bad. It was bad. Yeah. And it did use its stock footage well. Mm-hmm. Well, this is like, it had some good things, which is why it's ranked at number 150 and not number...
1: 200. 200. Yeah. Exactly. So why, for those listeners who might be wondering this, why so many Yeti movies in like a sudden spree in the mid-50s?
0: Well, you can think... Eric Shipton, for that, uh, he had an expedition to Mount Everest in 1951. And while there had been rumors and stories of Yeti in the Himalayans for a while, Shipton took photos of these footprints. And that reignited some of the Yeti conversation in the Western world, I mm. guess you could say. Now, I will say that, like... The first recorded account of a Yeti comes from 1832 when B.H. Hodson was in Nepal and uh, with some local guides, he saw a tall bipedal creature with long dark hair. He thought it was an orangutan, um, but it, it's fucking North Nepal. Like, that's pretty far from where these creatures should be. Footprints were then documented in 1899 by Lawrence Waddell. And then the very first usage of the phrase abominable snowman uh, came in 1921 and it was coined by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Howard Burry. When he was on expedition, uh, he and his guides saw footprints and his guides called it uh, the wild man of the snows. The very first photos of the Yeti footprints came in 1937 by Frank Smythe. And then from 1937, there's a gap until Eric Shipton in 1951. And then that sparks a whole whack of Yeti related events, I guess you could say.
1: I suppose there weren't too many Westerners doing like expeditions
0: you know, to Mount Everest
1: during World War II. Yeah. Yeah. They
0: were a little busy. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Eric shipped in 1951. A few years later, in 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and his guide Tenzig Norgay made it to the top of Mount Everest. So, Big news, lots of coverage about this. And he was like, oh, yeah, we definitely saw Yeti footprints. Uh, So Edmund Hillary would actually return to Nepal in 1960 to specifically look for Yeti evidence. Um, But before then, in 1954, the Daily Mail sponsored an expedition with mountaineer John Jackson uh, and... He found the footprints, kind of established that erosion theory, where uh, they're regular footprints, and then due to the wind that is on the mountain peaks, the footprints erode to look much larger than mm. they actually were. So that's that's a bit of the yeti. Uh, now that's of course like Western recorded or recorded by Westerners for the history. Um, Indigenous tribes and the Lepcha people who live in Nepal uh, have described the Yeti as, you know, this glacier being in their mythology, um, as king of the hunt. And he's kind of described as either an ape or bear bipedal creature who... um, carries around a club and is preceded by whooshing sounds of
1: the wind sure i seem to remember like a lot of the original sort of mythological yeti language was much more like bear driven and then it seems like the ape version got more and more prominence from like the influence of westerners because of like this idea about you know Missing links and, and things like that.
0: Yeah. And I think you can see that in uh, the way that the Yeti has been depicted in these horror movies. Yes. Um, because it's like a continuation of the man ape and the blurring of that line that you've mm-hmm. seen in other horror movies. Uh, kind of, you, you know, I think the best examples would either be Murders in the Rue Morgue or Island of Lost Souls. Right and it's just it just so happens to be in like a mountain snowy peak setting rather than like the jungle or a tropical island
1: yeah the the like one interesting idea in the snow creature was like is the yeti an animal or a man you mm-hmm. you you say he's the snowman the abominable snowman does that mean he's man Or beast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's sort of in half-human as well. Absolutely.
0: It's way more explicit in half-human where the implication is that there has been breeding between homo sapiens and these yeti creatures.
1: Yeah. And that implication is is also there in uh, man-beast where it's like implied that that's why they've been taking these women hostage and so on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But it all, you know, you can see can trace that plant all the way down to the seed in murders in the room yeah for sure but for a long time because these yeti movies have not been good i've been like why are we watching these like yes i get that they're horror but like why why is this a thing why do we care (laughs) yeah but and every time you've been like because of a movie coming from hammer horror just hold your horses sarah (laughs) it will come and the
1: day has arrived that's right yeah, this is probably the most prominent Yeti movie that I can think of, of this time period, certainly. It's certainly, I think, the highest budget Yeti movie of this time period that we're going to see. Um, there might be something I don't know about, but I'm pretty confident in making that statement.
0: <laughs> it definitely higher than The Snow Creature and Man Bees. Yes,
1: which were both made for about like $12 and change. Yeah. Um. So this movie began as the creature mm-hmm. a bbc drama written by nigel neal and produced by rudolph cartier and they were the guys who had done the quatermass experiment mm-hmm. uh, serial for the bbc which had been a huge hit and they had followed that up with an adaptation of withering heights <laughs> which is such a strange jump And then an adaptation of 1984, Mm -hmm. which was another big notable release. It was hugely controversial in Britain at the time to the point where like it was debated in parliament. um, And it also introduced the public uh, to Peter Cushing, who starred in it as Winston Smith. Now, after 1984, but before they did Quatermass 2, Neil and Cartier did this creature story. Um, which was a a one-night, you know, more like a TV movie Mm -hmm. kind of idea than like a miniseries.
0: And this would have been in like 1955. So kind of in line with some of the other Yeti pop culture stuff we've been been getting. Exactly.
1: In fact, Neil's inspiration to do a story about the Yeti was directly influenced by the Daily Mail-sponsored expedition. Mm Mm-hmm. Neil's take on the material was to basically make a morality play that showed the Yeti as being superior to humanity. Basically, Nigel Neil sat at his desk and thought to himself, what if man is the real monster and the monster is just misunderstood? What a brilliant idea that no one's had before. I will pen (laughs) this teleplay. That does
0: strike me as how Nigel Neal sits down to write things. <laughs> There's just something about the guy. He just gives me those vibes, man. Yeah,
1: for sure. The Creature starred actors Stanley Baker and Peter Cushing. And at this point, like Cushing had just come off of 1984, which had really raised his profile. But he was not yet Dr. Frankenstein in Curse of Frankenstein, right? Mm-hmm. So he wasn't a movie star yet. The creature was broadcast on January 30th, 1955, to a mixed reaction from critics uh, who considered it somewhat dull and formulaic.
0: I mean, that's, uh, that's been our main critique of these other Yeti movies. Mm-hmm.
1: Hammer Films purchased the rights to adapt the program in November of 1956, uh, having enjoyed great success with Quatermass and Quatermass 2 adaptations. Uh, as with those two earlier films, uh, Val Guest was called in to direct. Nigel Neal adapted his own script uh, for the screenplay for this movie, and he's relatively faithful to himself, um, especially since both were about 90 minutes. So unlike the Quatermass movies where he was having to adapt like a six episode serial into a 90 minute movie. Mm hmm. Some differences are present between the TV version and the film. Uh, The film adds a wife for Peter Cushing's character at Cushing's request um, because Cushing wanted his character to have more depth and for there to be a female perspective in the movie. Um, There basically are no female characters in the TV version.
0: Who knew Peter Cushing was an ally?
1: (laughs) (laughs) The character was named Helen after Cushing's real wife, who was kind of like the focus of cushing's life i guess you could say he was very very devoted to his wife and then after neil completed his screenplay as usual val guest went in and did his own little rewrite over it in order to eliminate long moral speeches throughout the story which guest felt belonged solely in courtroom dramas not in sci-fi horror thrillers sure The film was shot from January to March in 1957, which means it was shot after Quatermass 2, which shot from May to July of 56, and after Curse of Frankenstein, which shot from November of 56 to January of 57, but before either of those movies had been released. Mm -hmm. So basically while they were shooting this movie, the swing in public taste from sci-fi horror to gothic horror was not yet apparent to the studio and you know peter cushing was not yet baron frankenstein and all these sorts of things like as they were shooting this movie hammer was like no you know our our money's coming from these nigel Neal sci-fi adaptations
0: yeah so this is probably the last of of that
1: yeah because once curse of frankenstein came out it was like oh We know what the people want. Yeah, because it made money on orders of magnitude greater than the Quatermass films. And so, you know, the follow-up for Curse of Frankenstein was Dracula, Mm -hmm. not this movie. So while this movie came out after Curse of Frankenstein, this is more a follow-up to like Quatermass 2 in Spirit. And sort of represents like a, a fork in the road where like the path that we're traveling here ends and instead the path leading from Curse of Frankenstein is what continues.
0: Almost like uh, this is like the appendix, you know, like the vestigial remnant of
1: uh, Nigel Neal and Hammer Horror. Right. Uh, Peter Cushing, of course, reprises his role from the TV version, um, as does a couple of other actors, uh, Arnold Marie and Wolf Morris. Now, the original TV production had been titled The Creature to place ambiguity on whether it referred to the Yeti or the men. Um, Hammer thought that was a little bit too esoteric. Listen, Hammer isn't here for subtlety. Right, and wanted a more literal title. So initially they went with the snow creature until they learned of the existence of the 1954 movie and had to change it, hence the title becoming The Abominable Snowman. This was the final Hammer film to be co-produced by Robert Lippert, uh through his Regal Films unit at 20th Century Fox uh allowing the film to be shot in anamorphic Regal scope and as usual Lippert demanded an american star and basically this is the last time that Hammer had to do this okay um because the success of Curse of Frankenstein meant that Hammer could kind of write their own checks and and you know make their own terms
0: yeah they didn't have to rely on Lippert anymore yeah
1: And so they didn't have to rely on American stars anymore either. Um, But in this case, uh, this is what happened. And so Stanley Baker's role from the TV version was assumed by American actor Forrest Tucker. Now, Tucker was born in 1919. He was a farm boy from Indiana. Real Clark Kent vibes. Right. And he was interested in performance from a really young age. Uh, He got his start as an MC at like burlesque shows as a teen um, until it was discovered he was underage. Yeah, it's going to be like, how the hell did he get that job? Uh, And then once he was fired from there, he did sign up with the U.S. Army um, until it was discovered that he was underage and he was discharged. And then he wanted to try to make a go of it in California to try and become a movie star. So at age 20, uh, he moved out there with some financial assistance from like some rich, you know, mentors in his life. Um, And he went out there and he made a successful screen test and won a contract at Columbia Pictures, despite the fact that accepted Hollywood wisdom at the time was to avoid blonde men because they didn't photograph well, was Mm -hmm. the feeling at the time, um, particularly in black and white. But despite this, uh, Tucker made himself a career at Columbia generally everyone else considered him to have like matinee idol, good looks, but Tucker thought he was an ugly actor like James Cagney. (laughs) Um, but he filmed at Columbia for many years, uh, before leaving them for Republic in 1948 and then moving to England in 1953. Um, and this is this sort of trajectory from Columbia to Republic to moving to England is because his u.s career was suffering due to his alcoholism Mm. he stayed in england uh, until 1958 so this movie was obviously you know made in that period and in 1958 he won a role in the hit film anti-mame which revealed a hitherto unexpected talent for comedy and he started getting like lots of roles in comedies after that and his career started picking up again His most famous role would come in 1965 as Sergeant O'Rourke on the classic sitcom F Troop. Tucker acted regularly until 1986 when he passed away at age 67 from lung cancer. Now, surprisingly, Neil actually liked Tucker in the role. Yeah, because he hated the American for Quatermass. Yes. Um, He considered Tucker's performance to be on par with Baker's. They brought like different things to the character. Uh, Neil felt baker's performance was more subtle and that tucker's performance was more overt but he felt both did well in the role val guest disagreed uh feeling that tucker could not act and (laughs) spoiled the movie so
0: two different opinions especially because guest really liked the american as i don't remember his name so i can't you know say so he's just the american
1: right the cast also includes Richard Wattis, a well-known British comic actor uh, who's probably best remembered for his role in the St. Trinian's series of British comedies or from his role in the Marilyn Monroe vehicle The Prince and the Showgirl. Another, um, I don't know if familiar face is quite the right word because I feel most people would know him from when he's much older. But another actor who folks might recognize is Robert Brown uh, who's in a minor role here but is best remembered today for having played M in four of the James Bond movies from 1983 to 1989.
0: So that would be uh, the late half of Roger Moore?
1: Yeah and the entirety of Timothy Dalton's mm. period. Cool. The film did some second unit shooting in the French Pyrenees for real mountain footage. Ooh shelling
0: um, out money. Yes
1: before moving back to England to shoot at Bray and Pinewood Studios. And they went to a lot of effort to make sure that the studio footage and the second unit footage matched. Um, Val Guest brought like a moviola to Pinewood.
0: I don't know what that is.
1: Um, It's an analog like editing machine. Um, So so the way that it works is you have your like reel-to-reel for the film and then it passes through um, essentially like a light box and you have a little makeshift viewing monitor that's just a it's like a just a it's a screen there's light behind it and you see the film like a a slideshow or some shit right yeah
0: so it's just like a preview machine
1: yeah yeah exactly um so that they could see the footage and basically like match the lighting and um the look of the snow and and the look of the mountains and everything on the backdrops for on stage um and everything closely cool Like the Quatermass movies, Guest wanted to give the film a documentary-like realism with handheld camera and overlapping dialogue. However, he disliked shooting in the anamorphic format um, because anamorphic widescreen requires very careful framing to be effective, and he felt that this sort of removed spontaneity from the shoot. The film was shot by Arthur Grant, an experienced cameraman, who'd been working since the 30s, but this was his first time working for Hammer. Grant's speed and cost-effective working style would soon see him replace Jack Asher as Hammer's cinematographer of choice. So Asher was a guy who liked to sort of paint with color and really put his effort in, and and I'm not saying that Grant didn't put effort in, but Grant was faster and cheaper, so... Val Guest and Nigel Neal disagreed about how to show the Yeti on screen. Neil wanted the creatures basically kept to the shadows, except for maybe seeing like a a hand or an arm or something here and there, and to mostly leave the creatures to the audience's imagination.
0: That can be effective.
1: Guest wanted the creatures fully shown and in the light in order to emphasize the script's pro-Yeti message that these were like soulful beings, you know, that were worthy of being treated like people and, and that sort of thing. Sure. Guest ultimately kept the beasts in shadow, but when they are encountering humanity, um, he would do this thing where he would put the eyes in light in the shadows and focus on those eyes, um, the eyes of Yeti actor Fred Johnson, in order to convey the true nature of these beings as, as being, you know, creatures with, with emotion and, and souls.
0: Are you saying we're going to be getting some, like, original series Star Trek kind of lighting?
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yes. As with X the Unknown and Curse of Frankenstein, the special makeup for the Yetis was created by makeup artist Phil Leakey. So The Abominable Snowman was released with an A certificate from the BBFC on August twenty sixth, 1957, on a double feature with the American teen movie Untamed Youth, starring Mamie Van Dorn and Laurie Nelson.
0: This is kind of interesting because uh, the others have gotten an X rating, yeah, and very purposefully going for that X rating. So A would probably be like general audiences. A
1: is for adult. Ah, um, so this is somewhat inaccurate, but like the difference between an R and a PG
0: thirteen. Sure, sure. Yeah.
1: In the U.S., the movie was released under the title "The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas."
0: Okay, wanted to get that like. Geography, SEO.
1: Right. right. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) The movie's release was largely overshadowed by the huge success of Curse of Frankenstein. Like, Curse of Frankenstein was still making bank in the theaters when this came out kind of thing. This movie was something of a financial failure, uh, despite getting strong critical reviews from the British press at the time. Val Guest blamed the failure of the movie on the script being too subtle and too intelligent, and having far too much to say, and not delivering the shocks that people wanted from Hammer. I think the difference between that X rating and that A rating is why Guest felt the movie failed. And, you know, that they should have been trying to make a horror movie and not like an episode of Star Trek about how the Horda is actually just a mother protecting her eggs or whatever, right?
0: It's interesting that you just use that phrasing because... uh that implies that this might not be a horror movie
1: we'll find out um certainly. i mean it certainly
0: is marketed as one yes. the poster is like
1: this is a horror movie yes absolutely modern day reviews of this movie are kind of mixed um there are some who consider it like the atmosphere and the paranoia and all these things in the claustrophobia like all to be super effective there are others that consider it kind of like you know very weak when compared to curse of frankenstein or Uh, horror of dracula
0: i feel like it's not fair to compare it to horror of dracula because that hasn't even come out yet
1: i mean that's yeah we we do things chronologically here sarah (laughs) that being said it is the general consensus that this is the best of the 1950s yeti movies one way (laughs) or another
0: it it it, the bar is not that high (laughs) the bar is literally at rank 68 right which i guess is like You know, three quarters of the list. Right. But still. Yeah.
1: Like all of our other Hammer movies have ranked like way higher than that. Yeah. So So we'll see. Yeah. You can see The Abominable Snowman on Blu-ray from Scream Factory. Oh, Scream Factory coming through again. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy and watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss The Abominable Snowman from 1957 directed by Val Guest.
1: See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Abominable Snowman from 1957, directed by Val Guest. Sarah, what did you think of this movie?
0: What a difference on-location shooting makes.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And also, I mean, like, Val Guest is a pretty good director. Lots of moving camera, keeps you very oriented, uh, keeps you very engaged, good money. movie money. money money
1: makes the difference
0: <laughs> well they say it makes the world go round money. what did you think
1: yeah i thought this movie's really good it definitely looks like a million bucks
0: pounds a million pounds
1: sure <laughs> uh yeah so i was pretty impressed
0: yeah well let me tell folks what it's about mm-hmm. and then we can start discussing so Dr. John Rolison, his wife Helen, and colleague Peter Fox are based in the Himalayas, specifically at this uh, Rongbuk Buddhist temple. Um, and there is a Lama here—not the Dalai Lama. Lama is just a elder teacher at a temple. Yeah. Now they are here to study the herbal medicine, the botanicals that live and grow in, like, the higher altitudes. Um, So that's the basis of their expedition. But there's a second expedition arriving, led by a Dr. Tom friend, uh, with Ed Shelley and Andrew McNee. Andrew here is a photographer, and Shelley is a guide, a mountaineer. And they plan to go to higher altitudes to find Yeti. Now, Rolison is an experienced mountaineer. He hasn't done it for a while because of an injury, Um, but he knows of Friend's expedition and has already corresponded with him to go without telling his wife, Helen. And so there is a bit of a marital spat about whether John should go or not. Um, Ultimately, what kind of decides is that Friend has an artifact that happens to be from this temple uh, that has a tooth inside, uh, a tooth from a Yeti. So they're like, okay, onward. Now they do show this artifact to the llama and also you know, bring the artifact back to the temple because it had been plundered uh, in the past. Um, and the llama's like, the Yeti doesn't exist, guys, come on. This is actually a carved piece of ivory. This isn't a tooth, a claw, or anything. The Yeti doesn't exist. But the expedition goes on anyways. Um, Now, they do have a Sherpa guide named Kusang. And um, part of the plan for this and why Helen is nervous about this is they aren't taking any porters and any significant amount of supplies with them. Because all those people would scare any yeti away. A few months ago, like six months ago, Friend did a previous expedition where they basically brought supplies up the mountain and stored them, so there's going to be supplies up there. As we travel up the mountain, we get to learn a little bit more about these people uh, on the expedition, namely that Shelley isn't just a mountaineer, but a trapper, and this is a hunting expedition, King Kong style. John isn't very impressed by this, but what's he going to do? The other thing he learns is that McNee, while he is a person who can take photographs, is not an actual photographer. He actually paid to go on this expedition because he has been always fascinated by Yeti. So he's not a very good mountaineer. He, he should not even really be here. John's frustrations with Friend and his expedition mates Um, come to a head when Mcnee gets injured by a bear trap. Shelley didn't say that they were planting these and Mcnee walked into one. So now Mcnee is injured. He can't walk. It's possible he has a bone fracture in his ankle. And, you know, this is in addition to him kind of getting weird whenever it seems like he can maybe hear the yeti. Like, he hears something outside the tent one night. They look, there's no one there. um, And he kind of goes into, like, a bit of a trance-like state whenever they might hear sounds that are yeti. Now, they've made it to the summit where most of the supplies are. Uh, We've made it. And this happens to be when McNee walks into the bear trap. That night, they hear yeti sounds. And John, Shelley, and Friend are running around the camp trying to find where these sounds are coming from. Meanwhile, McNee and Kusang are in the tent, and they see a scraggly hand reaching through, grabbing at some of the supplies. McNee has a full trance-like face on, but Kusang sees this and freaks the fuck out, and he runs off out of the camp, back down the mountain, kind of yelling like, I've seen what I've not been meant to see. Shelly manages to shoot and kill that yeti, um, but they keep hearing sounds around, so clearly there's more yeti around. After the encounter with that yeti, McNee continues to be in a bit of a trans-like state, almost like he's in shock or something, but there is clearly something more going on. That morning, though, he seems to be fine and his leg is healing nicely, except for no explicable reason, he runs off and goes like running into the wilderness, and because he can't walk on his leg, uh, he ends up falling and dying from that fall. Now John is like, well, this is a terrible accident. And Friend's like, no, they killed him. The Yeti killed him. Uh, They howled him to madness. And John's like, no, he fell because he couldn't walk. While they are dealing with McNee, Shelly is back at base camp, and... uh, yeti are kind of coming towards him and he manages to shoot them off and like scare them off shelly starts to get paranoid that they know it was me who shot this other one so now they're after me friend comes up with this idea of using shelly as bait and setting up a trap in this cave uh where the yeti will come to get shelly the trap will come down and we'll have a live one john's like well we have a dead one let's just go friend's like no King Kong need a real live specimen. So Friend gives Shelley a gun just in case, and then they leave uh, as a blizzard rolls in um, for you know, the trap to run its course, uh, which it does, except the Yeti breaks out of the cage, and by the time that Friend and John arrive to the cave, Shelly is dead. He doesn't have any marks on him, But he's dead, and John thinks it was like a heart attack because his gun was filled with blanks. And Friend says, well, I I knew he was trigger-happy. I didn't want him to kill this Yeti, so I gave him blanks. And this kind of culminates into theories of, like, who are the real savages, like, between John saying, like, Friend, you're being, like, a real asshole. Like, these beings, these yeti, haven't actually harmed us. We've just been frightened to death and kind of causing our own mishaps. Mm -hmm. These guys are, like, their own species. We shouldn't be doing this. And Friend being, like, but, like, pursuit of knowledge, but also profit. So, uh, you know, money. (laughs) This is also, throughout the whole movie, we have been getting, like, hints of uh, Eastern mysticism, um, back at the temple, for example, the Lama uh, talks about thought transference and, and things like that. And the Buddhist monks do have some like strange ceremonies that we see a little bit of, but it's just kind of sprinkled in. And it seems to really be brought up again in the cave when it's just friend and John um, arguing back and forth because John is arguing that when evolution was happening, from the species that humans come from, we also get this species for like primates, and John's theory is that there was a third strain that led to the creation of Yeti, and they might have abilities that we don't have, like thought transference. Part of that theory is because McNee went into a trance whenever he heard the Yeti um, and just kind of behaved a little strangely. We get a little bit more evidence when both Friend and John begin to experience auditory hallucinations. Um, John thinks he hears the radio, uh, which has been broken by this point, um, saying, Hey, expeditions, come back home now. Friend, on the other hand, thinks he hears Shelly yelling out in the blizzard for help. And he becomes so worked up that Shelly's alive. No, I have to go help him that he runs out there and starts calling for Shelly and um, trying to find him. And his calls and he's shooting a gun in the air to try to be like, this is where I am. Where are you, Shelly? Uh, causes an avalanche. And that's the end of Tom Friend. So now it's just John. He went out to try to find Friend. No luck. So he makes his way back to the cave. And this is when he encounters live Yeti and sees Yeti face to face. And then we cut. Throughout the film, um, Helen and Fox uh, were starting to get worried. Mainly Helen getting worried about the expedition, especially when uh, Kusang came back. And she's also getting frustrated because no one seems to be verifying what she has seen. Like the llama says, no, Kusang didn't return. That's just all in your head. So eventually she and Fox start their own expedition to try and follow them, follow John's expedition to try to bring them back home. After we cut when John sees the Yeti, we come to Helen uh, sleeping in, in a tent, and suddenly for no real reason, she gets up and runs off into the night and manages to find John nearly frozen to death. They bring him back to the temple, and he seems to have, like, for the most part, recovered from that whole thing. And he is in a meeting with the llama. And John is saying, we didn't find anything. The, the Yeti don't exist. And the llama's like, are you sure? And John's like, yeah, the Yeti don't exist. And that's the end. That ending is uh, kind of interesting because I saw an interpretation of online saying like well is john in a trance from the yeti like was his memory wiped or something because we know that he saw them live
1: yeah yeah the ambiguity is on whether he has been memory wiped or whether he has made the like moral ethical decision to say there are no yeti
0: Mm -hmm. because a lot of what he's been saying before where like we should leave the yeti alone is like maybe they are the better race, mm-hmm. um, like more advanced race, and they're just waiting for us humans to kind of die out and kill ourselves because we're more savage, um, for them to then overtake the the earth. And we should just leave them be, and the fact that we have come here and seen them means that we are putting their existence at risk.
1: Yeah. And, you know, John goes through a bit of a, a character arc through the movie because although he's not as you know, Carl Denham about it as friend is about like, we- we're going to shoot one of these things and bring it back alive. You know, mm-hmm. um, John just wants to like observe them and take notes and take photos and maybe some recordings and whatever. Um, he still like wants everyone to know that there's Yeti there because mm-hmm. he has put his kind of like scientific reputation on the line in asserting that he believes in the existence of the Yeti. Right. So by getting to a point where he's like, no, there are no Yeti, the question is, yeah, did he go through sort of a character arc and learn something and decide that he's going to just sort of lie and say that they don't exist? Or was he mind controlled by Yeti? And if he was brainwashed by Yeti with their mental powers, that brings you into the sort of other ambiguous thing in this movie, which is, do the Yeti have mental powers because mm-hmm. it's it's suggested, but like, you know, it could also just be that these guys are up really high and are like oxygen deprived and are s-
0: continuing to smoke like several packs a day right. and
1: are and are seeing things and hearing things because they're driving each other mad with like their paranoia and and their fears and whatnot. So the movie doesn't dictate to you kind of whether the mental telepathy of the llama, you know, or the Yeti is real or not.
0: Yeah. Which do you believe? Like, which interpretation?
1: I think that there's real telepathy going on in the movie. Like, I think the llama has powers, and I think the Yeti have powers, but I don't think John has had his memory wiped. The reason I don't think John has been memory wiped is because otherwise like he doesn't have a there's no character arc like otherwise Mm -hmm. like he didn't learn anything and the story doesn't have like significance really like it it means that the story may as well have never happened because no one remembers it and i don't think that's as satisfying as john and the llama kind of coming to this like wink wink understanding where like the llama's like the yeti don't exist and john's like that's right the yeti don't exist And it's like, you know, they both know that the Yeti exists. Because you you kind of, by the end of the movie, have a sense that one of the reasons why this monastery is up here is to sort of protect the Yeti.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the interpretation that I agree with as well. I didn't even think of John being mind-white until I saw this interpretation online. because I feel like it's clear that, like, in Cushing's performance that John is, like, purposefully being like no they don't exist not like no i don't think they do (laughs) you know where like clearly mind has been wiped um as far as thought transference telepathy powers i feel like the movie is like trying to make a case for it being a thing um just with the, the way that mcnee behaves the way that helen behaves But I am also more in favor of the idea of, like, not just altitude sickness and their own paranoia. Yes, the Yeti exist, and yeah, they are there, but they don't have telepathy powers. Um, But I feel like that's me, and that's against what the movie is actually trying to show me.
1: Sure. Yeah, there's a definite sense that, like, the Yeti let John go. Yeah. And then guided Helen to finding him right?
0: Absolutely. And I feel like that also is in line with um, the llama has this line of uh, when Helen's like worried and she wants to go find John's expedition, the llama is like, there's nothing you can do. It's up to John's own choices, Mm -hmm. whether he survives or not. Yeah. And it's done in a cryptic way of like, will he make the right moral choice about the Yeti?
1: Yeah.
0: What, is involved in that choice is yet to be determined at that point in the movie. Um, But I think it comes down to whether, you know, will John be like, no, they exist. They're right over here beyond this ridge or not.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of clear that, like, the Yeti have judged the party and found them wanting and using their telepathy, if that's what's going on, are, you know, driving them to destroy themselves. Mm Mm-hmm right? And and that's the thing. The movie
0: definitely wears its theme on its sleeve about like, who are the real savages. Right. I think that is kind of down to uh, the guy who plays Tom Friend being so blunt.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think the cast all do a really great job mm-hmm. here, actually. And speaking about the guy who plays Friend, uh, Forrest Tucker, I actually really like him. As Tom Friend, I think he does a really great job at bringing just the right amount of bluster to the role. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's enough to signal him as the like thick-skulled, get things done American character, um, but it's not so much that he ever becomes too unsympathetic to be believable. Yeah. Um, like this is a guy who could conceivably be the hero of a different movie
0: yeah if this was an adventure focused movie he would be the hero
1: right exactly
0: i think the other reason why the bluntness or lack of subtlety kind of works here is because the movie doesn't belabor the point because there's no time to belabor the point Hmm. we're not having to fill time with just like pages and pages of dialogue um everything that happens in this movie at least in, in like after they arrive to the summit it happens over like a day and a half so there's no time to just sit and ra- sit around and talk
1: yeah and i think even with val guest having cut some of nigel Neal's like speeches out of the movie there's still a lot of speeches like like the movie's <laughs> like moral philosophy like comes across absolutely right you get it I think of all the Yeti movies we've seen so far, uh, this is the one that most convincingly depicts the setting.
0: Absolutely. You know, the real mountain footage is a big part of that. And the fact that you can tell, like, this isn't stock footage. This is real. We took this footage ourselves um, and then also the huge sound stages.
1: Yeah. The set for the Buddhist temple is super impressive. Like yeah. it feels like you're outside. It feels like that's like real stone and gravel and, and bronze and whatever. Like it feels real even if the Lama is played by a German actor. Mm-hmm. Um, it just feels way more authentic. I don't know enough about Himalayan Buddhist monasteries to know if like what we're being shown when we see the ceremonies and what things look like and stuff i don't know if it's accurate Mm -hmm. but it feels authentic it feels accurate
0: there was nothing where i was like ah i think that's actually japanese
1: right or just like the sense that we've gotten in some of these previous yeti movies where it's just like taking tropes from other kinds of like adventure movies and just sort of like stapling them on like where the natives feel like they could be interchangeable with like cowboy and Indian kind of Western tropes or things like that. Um, The footage in the mountains blends really wonderfully with the stuff on the soundstage. Uh, You can really suspend your disbelief, but also the actors do a really great job at conveying like their physical exhaustion. Like you yes. really feel as if they've been trudging up a mountain for days. They're, they're always like a little bit out of breath because they're up high in the altitude. Like it, it's convincing.
0: Absolutely. And I think the movie's use of snow, whether that was like on the ground, uh, having it start gently snowing the full blizzard, even the avalanche, you could tell like they're actually dumping a significant amount of snow onto the stage. It just I kept thinking of, um, I think it's man beast where like, Oh no, an avalanche. And then like a snowball falls yes. down on someone like very unconvincing as an avalanche.
1: Right. Yeah. This movie has a lot of really good mood and atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks to the black and white cinematography and, One thing I really appreciated was the gradual rise in the tension and everyone like slowly going mad, because it's gradual enough that you believe that they would actually keep going until it's too late. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of times these kinds of movies try to put like some sort of early incident that's meant to be a bit foreshadowing, you know, or a bit alarming to like signal like, oh, something's not right. And it's just too much yeah it's like if you were actually there and you act- and that actually happened, you'd be like, mm, we're packing up, and we're turning around <laughs> back it um, in, boys, yeah, whereas here i I actually really believe you know it's like, okay, like the thing with Mcnee is an accident, and it's like, well, that sucks, but we're up here, and we gotta keep going, and then you know Mcnee dies because he gets like driven mad and falls off a cliff and it's like well that's a horrible tragedy but like you know we're up here we've got a dead yeti in the bag we want to get a live one let's just keep going Mm -hmm. and then like shelly dies and it's like oh well we're really screwed because now there's just two of us Mm -hmm. what are we how are we what are we going to do you know, and it's like, and well, then
0: by then they're stuck there because yes, of the
1: blizzard. Exactly, exactly. And so it, it you can buy that they stuck around too long until it was too late. You know,
0: absolutely. I think a big part of that is the atmosphere building that you kind of touched on. And that atmosphere really comes through with the use of the sound design, both with like the use of whooshing with the wind, the, the feeling of you're here in the middle of nowhere in the desolate snow really comes across with that design and then the sound of the yetis kind of echoing all around you they do a really good job of making you feel surrounded
1: oh yeah the the yeti cries in the distance like echoing through the valleys or whatever is super super eerie it's very effective Mm -hmm. um i think the script is very intelligent uh which is something i noticed like right away when we started watching it like these feel like real professional guys yeah these feel like how these characters should feel how they should talk um friend is never so over the top that you would wonder why anyone in their right mind would go working for him you know he comes off as believable it just feels like nigel neal did some research did some (laughs) homework like learned some stuff about the Himalayas learned some stuff about buddhist temples learned about you know what's known about yeti at the time you know learned about like what's some good mountaineering practice you know all of this kind of stuff put all that in, in the movie in a convincing way rather than just filling the movie up with tropes from old movies
0: here's the thing though friend and his expedition mm-hmm. really do feel like they are characters out of an american adventure movie yes even to the point where the way Shelley interacts with the buddhist monks or their guides when they reach the temple like he's like well watch them i think they're treacherous like they have a treacherous look to them and they like they're just buddhist monks they're pacifists they will literally not hurt you like they will not hurt a fly <sighs> and Like, yes, it's probably there to make you go like, okay, well, these guys probably aren't like the best guys. But it was just interesting to me how these characters who all die are wandering into a horror movie and still relying on these like adventure tropes that we kind of brought up earlier.
1: Yeah, um, it's because this is a British movie that it works. (laughs) <laughs> because, like, if we were watching an American movie, like, Ed would turn out to be right and, you know, the monks would be trying to kill them in their sleep at night at the temple and following them around all shifty-eyed and stuff. But, like, this is a British movie and we start the film with the British characters, with with Rolison and Fox and his wife all being very intelligent, polite, calm British people. There's a really funny bit where Fox... Is just like super, super complaining about being here, um, and you know how he doesn't like this country, and he doesn't like the people here, and he doesn't like the food, and he doesn't like anything about it, and he wants to get back to like go- good old England as soon as possible. And then when the Americans show up, they're portrayed as just being huge assholes to like everyone and everything. They just have all this bluster. They're just sort of shouting orders at people, and one of them, I think it's Ed starts giving out like the same kind of complaints about how like the people here are shifty and the food is awful and everything smells and I hate this country and Fox goes, Oh, I I think it's a rather attractive country actually. Yeah. Um, (laughs) just because like he finds these Americans like so distasteful.
0: Um, I will say that like I liked the addition of Helen. Mm. Um, I really liked her character. I liked the role that she has to play but she does kind of supersede fox fox is now a bit redundant for being here um but at least you know hey a a lady is in the movie and she has some kind of like agency
1: here yeah i mean so it's it's made very clear throughout the movie like she is her husband's colleague like they're both scientists they both go out on these expeditions um which is really cool Um, It also serves like a good story purpose so that when John is like, I'm going to go off on this Yeti hunting expedition and she's like, it's not safe. You shouldn't go. And she's worried about him and she wants him to like not go on the expedition. The fact that she's also a scientist and the fact that she's his colleague and the fact that they always go everywhere together and that, you know, they do the expeditions together means that we know that she is used to rough conditions and she's used to danger and she's used to these kinds of things Mm -hmm. and so her saying like don't go it's not safe isn't just sort of the typical like you know soft woman back home baking the cookies for the kids being like don't have an adventure right like no she is she can be objective in this it's not just don't leave me right exactly and so like that's really cool Mm -hmm. that being said if you know that she wasn't in the movie originally it's kind of obvious that she was shoehorned in because her subplot isn't really directly related to anything we just cut back to her at the temple getting more and more worried until finally she decides to go on her own expedition and then that expedition goes off into the snow and then she finds john at the end and you really don't need any of that like you could cut all that out and it wouldn't make any difference in the story right john could just make it back to the monastery or be
0: found by some of the buddhist monks
1: exactly but her presence is very important emotionally as like an anchor for john in the real world like he has something that he needs to get back to you
0: Mm -hmm. know yeah so i really liked her in this um In the context setting, you mentioned how there was some contention about whether to show the Yeti and whether to not, and that the film decided to, or rather the director decided to not really show the Yeti until kind of the end, and even then they are in shadow. Mm -hmm. I really liked this approach. What about you?
1: I'm sort of split on how little we see the Yeti. Um, On the one hand, I think it's dramatically weak in a visual medium, to have characters talking about what they saw without actually seeing it. Like, they kill a Yeti kind of early on. Mm -hmm. And by that point, we've seen its arm. And honestly, I think these are the best-looking Yeti we've seen outside of, like, maybe half-human, which had a pretty elaborate costume. Um, Yes.
0: I think it still looked a little goofy, but maybe that's just because it looked very much like Harry and the Hendersons. (laughs)
1: A little bit. Yeah. I really liked the arm that we see reach into the tent because it really sells how big Mm. the Yeti are like the hand reaches over like a gun at one point and the guns like the size of like a toy gun. Yeah. Like a a ruler or something like this thing's massive. And I I really liked that um, because it sells the scale a lot better than like, you know, having a tall guy in a costume. Right. Yeah. Um, so I like that. So we see that. And then when they shoot the Yeti dead, there's a shot where we just sort of see that same arm like sprawled out on the snow. And then we don't see the body it's attached to the body's like off camera and the characters all gather around. They're like, Oh wow, look at that. And Cushing has dialogue there. And a few other times start the movie about how like the face really bothers him because it doesn't look like an animal. It doesn't look human but it doesn't look like an animal and the eyes have this sadness and wisdom behind them. And that's really what starts his ball rolling on this whole, like maybe the Yeti are better than us thing Mm -hmm. and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's just really frustrating in a movie to have characters be like, wow, look at that and be pointing to something just off screen that we aren't cutting to.
0: Yeah. I thought that was weird. It made it feel strangely almost like a play.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, keeping them in shadow is clearly like very effective, particularly since ultimately where the horror is coming from in this movie is from within the character's own minds and what they imagine could be out there. You know, and we hear the Yeti howls on the wind and, and the characters, you know, start really getting up into their own heads and, and things like this and so keeping the yeti up to the audience's imagination as well like fits that it puts us in that same headspace of Mm -hmm. like you know jumping at shadows so it it works thematically so i'm i'm kind of split on it
0: yeah i think the fact that we don't see them until john who is just, like, lost friend in this avalanche. He's he's realizing how alone he is. He comes back into the cave, and then he realizes with a start that there's not one, but there are two big yeti in here. And we cut to seeing them from his point of view, and they're huge in shadow. And that just... The fact that we hadn't seen them up until that point made that moment really effective. Yes. Because I was like, oh, shit, now we're seeing them when, like, we're alone. Um. So I, I think it worked really well. Um, I I was really into it. I wasn't sure going in what to expect with knowing we, we might not get to see much. Because in a lot of lesser movies, avoiding seeing the creatures because uh, the creature looks terrible. Right. And we, we we're a little ashamed of it.
1: Yeah, like snow creature.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it. they don't really... Use what they have effectively. I think the reason why not showing much here in The Abominable Snowman works so well is because they've done the work to build up the mood. They're not just like showing glimpses here and there because like they're ashamed of it. They're doing it with a purpose and to drive home the horror of like what is out there, kind of tying with the themes that you just pointed out.
1: Yeah. I really like the psychological fear aspect of this movie Mm -hmm. um even though I will say it does make the horror in this film more conceptual than visceral sure I think this kind of horror about like being kind of stuck in your own head and and jumping at shadows and and sort of psyching yourself up um I think it works better in prose Mm -hmm. than in a movie like it's the kind of horror that you know, Lovecraft is well-known for. And I think that moment when Kusang is like, I have seen things man is not meant to see and like goes crazy and runs down the mountain. was like a very Lovecraftian sort of moment. Um, I respect this kind of horror. It works really well on like an intellectual level and it can, you know, be put across very effectively. And I think it is put across very effectively in this movie. But I do see why Val Guest thought it was weak compared to the other hammer material which is a lot more visceral where yeah you know
0: where christopher lee gets shot in the eye
1: yeah and, <laughs> and people's like faces melt off and like yeah you know um yeah so i can see why this got the a rating instead of the x rating mm-hmm. and i i understand the concern of Algesta of being like this is a little too cerebral we need maybe to be a bit more like guts on the screen kind of thing
0: yeah i feel like this all culminates to us saying this is a horror movie not just an adventure movie Mm -hmm. um and for me the main reasons for that is the pacing because a lot of this all happens in one night so you really do feel that trapped feeling um the nature of the confrontation when john faces the yeti at the end um And the fact that like, yeah, you don't really know what's out there. You're kind of facing off this unknown threat versus an adventure movie where it's like you're facing off against the elements or the suspicious natives.
1: Yeah. There's certainly a stretch of this movie where you feel like it's just going to be an adventure movie. But Mm -hmm. I think once they're up on the mountain and night falls and... You know, it's just them in this like cramped space, and you're hearing sounds outside, and people are jumpy, and they're turning on one another. Like, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, this is this is a horror movie for sure.
0: So, where would you like to look at ranking this?
1: So, when I was looking at making a range for this, um, I took a look down at Jujin Yuki Otoko, which mm-hmm. is down at sixty eight, and found that Quatermass Two is right above it at 67. So that's like our highest ranking Yeti movie. It's also our like most recent Hammer Val guest Nigel Neal movie. So I think this is better than both of those films. I would agree. Directly above that is like Cult of the Cobra and The Bad Seed and Not of This Earth and movies like that. So I started sort of working my way up, trying to find like, okay, what is this movie like definitely better than and I settled uh at 51 uh below dementia and above the black sleep I figured this was definitely better than the black sleep which is fun but kind of nonsense and goofy
0: it's like a fun romp in Universal's sandbox yeah but that's really about what's going on there yeah
1: it's it's like a little reunion movie Um, so I figured my floor would be 51 working my way up from there to try and find a ceiling. Um, I made it up to number 40, which is white reindeer. And I think white reindeer has more artistry and, um, more of a horror focus on display. Like white reindeer is very, I think intellectual as well, but I do think that it's folkloric elements enable the horror to be more visceral in a way that this movie isn't.
0: I would also agree with that.
1: Below white reindeer is house of wax, which is super, super visceral in its horror, but maybe not as smart as (laughs) um, the abominable snowman kind of a dumb movie a little bit. So I made that my ceiling. So basically my range for this movie is 41 to 51.
0: Okay, so as you could tell with my agreeance, with a lot of uh, what you were talking about, I was also looking above Jujin Yuki Otoko. Um, but I kind of used that as my floor because I was like, okay, hey, I know this is going to be better than that and quit a mass too. As I started working my way up, I also was drawn to the black sleep and dementia, but I was like, I'm not sure whether this is better than dementia. Um, which was doing a lot with no dialogue, Yeah, you know? Um, Still had that very paranoia feeling, um, very claustrophobic feeling, and really achieving that in a way that I think you could argue is cerebral, but also
1: visceral. Sure.
0: So that was kind of my range. I did try to narrow it down a bit. My eyes settled around... um, 54 and 55, The Leopard Man and The Man Who Changed His Mind. Because I was thinking, okay, The Leopard Man struggles, but part of the reason why it's this high is because of that very strong sequence where the chick is walking home and then gets eaten by the leopard outside of her mom's door. In The Abominable Snowman, there's no scene that is quite as like, holy shit, is mm. that? Yeah. But the tension that is maintained throughout everything I think works really, really well. So I thought that this, you could make the case for abominable snowman going above the leopard man. And then I was thinking about with 53, the creature walks among us. Um, the way that that movie deals with like, are we the savages by like turning this creature of the black lagoon into a land creature? And, uh, John's feelings about the Yeti. And I feel like the idea of taking the last known missing link creature and turning it into a land creature and then it goes to commit suicide at the end is a bit more of a horrific ending than just, yeah, just don't talk about them. (laughs) Keep the conspiracy going.
1: That's fair. Although I think Creature Walks Among Us is really let down by how much they botch that ending
0: yes absolutely
1: so your ceiling and my floor are in the same place so i think what makes the most sense is to put the movie there um below dementia and above the black sleep
0: cool i'm into that
1: all right so entering the list at the new number 51 is the abominable snowman from 1957 directed by val guest
0: if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene.
1: Scream scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review. Share the show online with your friends through social media or in the real world with your mouth. <laughs> uh, and if you would like to support the show financially and have the means to do so, you can head over to patreon.com slash podcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the 5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content. And thanks to our patrons, we are now doing regular horror-adjacent episodes once a month on movies like Young Frankenstein and Stephen Sommers' The Mummy. And so if you want to take part in the polls that decide which movie we'll be doing each month, you need to sign up for our Patreon, and then you can help shape the future of the show. <laughs> so head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast.
0: So what are we watching
1: next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are watching an AIP British co-production that is a basically unauthorized remake of Cat People. Oh no. Called Cat Girl.
0: <laughs> um it's just going to throw our SEO stuff in complete chaos, Ben. Yeah,
1: but you know, if we can if we can get some of that sweet sweet cat girl traffic. <laughs>
0: Well, we will see you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.